It is good to be with you this morning as we get ready to jump back into John chapter 12 and continue the teaching of Christ that we began last week. I don't know if uh, you guys have been following headlines and things lately and noticed how many times the word truth is showing back up in headlines lately. It's like all of a sudden our culture is interested in the power of truth and whether it's Whatever side of the aisle or the political spectrum or the social spectrum, everybody's writing about this new effort to recover objective truth, to guide and define our path forward as a nation. And it kind of stuck out to me because objective truth didn't seem to be very popular for a while, uh, especially with postmodernism being so dominant for so long, and yet... The concept of objective truth is one of those things that I don't think means what people think it means anymore. Uh, More and more, instead, I think we're seeing the simple fact that whoever controls the dictionary that we use to communicate, whoever tells the most widely accepted story about what everything around us means, has the actual power in the culture. People are realizing that. And so we're seeing the landscape constantly shifting under our feet as our culture keeps trying to change the meaning of words and keeps reinventing stories to explain everything until we find some magic combination that will bring happiness and success, whatever definition of those words we're currently using. And that's being called the pursuit of truth. But it isn't. We know that. That is late-stage deception where lies are boldly told and labeled as truths by people who have been deceived so long they honestly believe their own falsehoods. And today in God's Word, I want us to be reminded of the incredible value of actual truth. Truth revealed to us in unchanging terms by an unchanging God that have an unchanging effect And specifically, I want us to see how the truth connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ can be counted on by each of us and every day for our comfort, for our salvation, and for our transformation into the image of Christ. And so if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, and you've got it open to John chapter 12, I would invite you as you are able to stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and we will be reading this morning verses 27 to 36. John chapter 12, 27 to 36 says this, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, 
For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Would you pray with me? Father, as your son asked on our behalf that would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. And so we ask this morning that our time in your word through your spirit, you would use it in our hearts to help us to die to sin and live unto righteousness, to become that much more like your son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And this we ask in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said this morning, I want to explore the power of actual gospel truth in our lives. And I think we have an amazing vignette here in the life of Christ that illustrates the way that Jesus understood and used gospel truth in his own life and for those that he was ministering to. And if you've got your outlines this morning from your little bulletin, uh, we've got a pretty simple outline. It's three ways in which truth is meant to impact us. And the first, if you're taking notes, is that truth is there to steady our souls. Truth to steady, to steady our souls. In verses 27 to 28, we saw first in verse 27, Jesus saying, after having taught his disciples this principle of laying down their lives, dying to self to be fruitful, he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? There have been many reasons John has given us in his gospel to see Jesus as the divine Son of God, an object for belief and for trust and for faith. But he has also been very liberal with helping us to see the humanity of Christ, that he was God in human flesh. Jesus was not somehow immune to the weight of what was approaching him. As he spoke about that principle of dying to self, he was only too aware that he would soon be the ultimate example of giving his own life for others. And that word troubled we just saw in that passage, it's the same word that we saw Jesus use back, if you recall, when he met Mary and she was weeping over the death of her brother Lazarus. And Jesus said his soul was troubled at that time. It means to shake or to stir, to upset and to disturb and Jesus here asks this question that comes out of this troubled soul. And in the Greek there, the word troubled indicates that it's not something that just came upon him at this moment, but it was an ongoing state that Jesus was wrestling with as he approached the cross. And so one commentator notes, Jesus' question, what shall I say, comes to everyone in one form or another in the midst of trauma. It is the question of resetting, redefining, or reasserting one's bearings as the result of trauma. It does not mean that one changes one's direction. It means that one must look intensely at one's direction. One can expect and plan for trauma, but the actual coming of trauma forces one to face the existential questions of one's being. And Jesus here, as our perfect example in all things, I think gives us much to learn 
as he considers the personal cost of what lies before him. And I don't think Jesus went through an existential crisis here. He knew who he was. He knew who he was and what he was sent for at a level that we do not. But I do believe he is asking a question born of genuine anguish. Genuine anguish. Even as we consider during communion, it is, it is truly impossible to imagine how horrific it would be to anticipate bearing the full wrath of God. How will he steady his own soul? We can make even now, from just even this question, an initial observation that it is not sinful to be troubled by trials. It is not sinful to be troubled by trials. To have our souls stirred within us is not a failure of maturity. It's not a failure of trusting God, lest Jesus would be found wanting in some way. Jesus himself felt that heavy churning within him. It is what he does next that separates him from us and how we so often react to the hardships that we face. And I want us, even as we then prepare to see how Jesus will respond to the anguish of his soul, to, to consider and ask ourselves, where does our troubled soul turn when we find it stirred within us? Do we turn to distraction? So common in this culture. When we are upset, when we are distraught, do we turn to our favorite television program? Do we turn to our favorite sports team? Do we turn to reading the news? Do we turn to drugs? Do we turn to alcohol? Do we turn to some kind of distraction to get us away from having to deal with the hardship before us? Do we turn to anxiety? Do we allow that hardship to build and build to like a feedback loop in our heart ringing louder and louder and louder until the cacophony of distress has overwhelmed and paralyzed us? Do we turn to anger and bitterness to, to that sense that this is not fair, this is not right, this should not be, and begin to vent towards the situation or to others around the situation in anger and in bitterness? Do we turn to despair? Does the bottom just fall out of our world and we sink into that melancholy that keeps us from experiencing the joy of the Lord and engaging in the responsibilities that He's given us? Or are you a good Bible church member and you turn to that flavor of Christian stoicism that's always been so helpful and just tape a straight face on, grit it out, and pretend that if, I, if I'm a good Christian, I won't feel anything at all. Jesus did not allow his heart to turn to any of these things. And so he avoided the sin that we so often tragically layer on top of what are already very hard circumstances. Instead, Jesus took up the weapon which is ever and only successful at dealing with all threats to the human soul. Truth. And so Jesus says, Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. That question there, Father, save me from this hour, it can be taken in two ways, and you have to decide from context which way you think Jesus means it. First, it could be a hypothetical question attached to his previous question, 
reading like many of your Bible translations made this morning. What shall I say then? Father, save me from this hour? As though it were like a hypothetical thing Jesus could have prayed, but knows he shouldn't. The implication being that such a question would not be appropriate to ask. And that's a possible translation here. But I think it is more likely that this question is in fact genuine, that Jesus is in fact asking his father to save him from the hour that is approaching. And I tend to lean towards taking this question this way for two reasons. First, I think it better reflects the genuine torment of the soul of Jesus that he just revealed to us in verse 27. But also, I think in many ways, this conversation we are meant to recognize as directly paralleling a very similar conversation that Jesus will have again with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he is betrayed. As you recall, when Jesus prayed to God in the anguish he experienced only hours for his crucifixion, when he was sweating drops of blood, he again asked the Father to take the cup of suffering from him. I think once again we can learn from this that it is no sin not only to be troubled in our souls, but also to ask the one who is sovereign over all the moments of our lives to rescue us from the coming of pain and of suffering. It's okay to ask for deliverance. In fact, it is, I believe, a good and proper question from any child of God who rightly understands that God is a loving Father. However, and this is an important however, a prayer for deliverance alone is an incomplete prayer and reflects an incomplete understanding of God's work. And so I want you to see how Jesus uses two important truths here to steady his soul. First, he reminds himself of his purpose. As that wave of emotion passes over his soul, he does not succumb to panic, but he instead reminds himself that this was the expected hour. To bear the wrath of God is the reason he came into this world. It is the reason he has spent the last three years of public ministry, teaching the people and discipling his followers. On a larger scale, it is the central act for which God created the universe in the first place. Our distresses in life are often made much worse by the fact that they strike us as wildly unexpected and as a betrayal of our rights. Remember, Christian, God has promised us that in this life, we will have tribulation. As Paul rightly observed in Romans 8.35, this is the land of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and sword. Jesus has called us to take up our cross daily and follow him. This is a direct call to follow in the footsteps of his dying. And so like Jesus, we are to remember when the hour of testing or in some of your cases, the season of testing comes upon us for this purpose, we have come. And as we shall see, Jesus overwhelmingly conquers in his hour of testing. And we too are said to be overwhelming conquerors through Jesus who loves us. When it is not our assigned season of testing, God will deliver us out of that. 
But when it is our assigned season of testing, God will accompany us through, but not remove us from the trial. Jesus died to be the gospel, and in our suffering, we prove the gospel. And this sense of purpose is the first truth Jesus fortifies himself with. And the second truth is encapsulated in a short prayer that takes less than three seconds to pray and will take, I think, us an eternity to appreciate. And that is in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. This prayer is echoed as well in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, having asked the Father to remove the cup of suffering from him, immediately follows the request with the statement, Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is a very difficult prayer to mean sometimes. But it is a prayer that indicates the condition of our faith. Faith is a confident trust in God. It isn't like a Netflix subscription where I'll commit for a month as long as I like the shows. And then if I stop liking what you're showing me, I'm out. Faith is a commitment to God that is all in and forever. And we must remember that everything God does is for his glory. Absolutely everything. For a being who is the measure of existence, the measure of goodness, the measure of holiness, the measure of beauty, it would in fact be wrong for God to do anything that was not about displaying his perfections in some way. Understanding this, though, is only half the battle. Because there's a world of difference between a prayer that communicates, God, you're going to glorify yourself anyway, so I guess it doesn't matter what I ask for. And a prayer that communicates, Father, my soul desperately wants deliverance from this situation. But there is one thing I desire even more, that you would do whatever most glorifies you because I trust that it will be what is most good for me too. This is the heart of faith that realizes even the deepest longings of our heart can fall far short of what is best for us. But that whatever God does that is in his best interest always is in the best interest of his children as well. In short, the truth that steadies the troubled soul is clearly understanding our purpose and completely trusting God's purpose. In response to the prayer of Jesus, the voice of the Father then rings out audibly from heaven for the third time in the life of Jesus, although this is the only one recorded in John's Gospel, both previous times at the baptism of Jesus and at the transfiguration of Jesus, the message from heaven has been about the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And at the transfiguration it was also added, listen to him, probably because Peter was busy talking when he should have been listening. This time, however, the message is different. What words will the Father give to comfort his beloved Son? We'll read. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
The Father does not remove His Son from the hour that is coming, but He does directly answer that closing prayer of Jesus. The glory of the Father has always been on display in the life of the Son from the moment Jesus arrived on earth. As you recall, all the way back in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In fact, the glory of the Father and the Son are inextricably linked. As Jesus will reveal more fully in a few chapters, in John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then a few verses later, he says, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. To hear the Father promise to glorify his name was not cold comfort to Jesus. It didn't mean that God would make sure he came out looking good, but at the expense of Jesus... Rather, it meant that the plans of the Father are inevitably about glorifying His name and they are linked to the glory of the Son. And this is true for the whole family of God. His only begotten Son and all of His adopted sons. Of course, there would be no adopted sons if the only begotten Son had refused to face the hour He was fast approaching. And that's the theme of Jesus' next words. But first, a couple lessons for us. The first is this. The gospel means God cares how you feel. The gospel means God, God cares how you feel. When God sent his son to die for us, when Jesus lived in this world as a man who was God, when he when he bore the wrath of God for us, when he therefore paved a way whereby faith we may come to be part of the family of God, God cares about the state of your soul. Jesus did not come to the Father and and confess the distress of his soul to the Father because it just sort of seemed like the right thing to do. He did it because his relationship with the Father was so close and so intimate that they shared everything with one another, and we are invited to do the same. Every good father cares about the, the hearts of his children, and so does our Father in heaven. And sometimes I think, especially in, in church contexts where we, and praise God for this, love emphasizing the sovereignty of God and the way in which he is control, in control over all things, the transcendence of God. His holiness and the things about God that make him unlike his creation, I think sometimes unwittingly that begins to push God further from us in our minds. And we forget that he is the God that draws near, that Jesus Christ is a sympathetic high priest, and that when your soul is stirred, the Father cares and the gospel proves it. And secondly, the gospel means God's plan is best for you. I'm sure that's a thought you've, you've never heard before. This is, this is Christianity 101, but man, this is where we live, isn't it? 
so easy to say, so hard to believe when everything that we thought was best for us all of a sudden goes sideways. The gospel means that the Father will glorify himself for sure and that because you are his child, he will guarantee that all things work together for your good because that's how he has chosen to glorify himself. And yes, that applies to the trial you're in. And no, I can't tell you what that means in your trial because I haven't seen the end of the story for your trial. But we've seen the pattern in Christ. And if God can turn the rejection and the death and the crushing of his son into the most glorious thing that ever will occur in all of time and eternity... We can trust him that he knows what he's doing with us as well. The gospel means God's plan is best for each of us. And that needs to be a point of faith. Secondly, this morning, as I mentioned, Jesus understands that he must face this hour in order to secure our salvation. And he wants to begin to teach the people around him more specifically what that will entail And so we see the truth to save in verses 29 to 33. In verse 29, John turns to the crowd, gives us their reaction to this voice from heaven. It says, So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. This crowd of people around Jesus, likely Jews and Gentiles, as we discussed last week, they were unable to understand the heavenly voice. Some said, I think it's thunder. And that's not an uncommon adjective to use to describe the voice of God even throughout the Old Testament. When God spoke, it had a thunderous quality to it. How many of you can't wait to hear what the voice of God sounds like someday? That will be cool. Others, they at least were perceptive enough to realize this was some kind of a speech act, but they attributed it to an angel speaking to to Jesus, not the Father. And what a perfect picture of the helplessness of man. The Father and the Son are literally having a conversation with each other about glory in the hour of salvation. And they're looking around, is it going to rain? Jesus draws them back in in verse 30 and says, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Undoubtedly, the response of the father was of immediate encouragement to Jesus, but he tells us here that this exchange was actually not primarily for his benefit, but for the benefit of those gathered around. And despite the fact that they had not understood the words from heaven, the utterance was still for their benefit. If for nothing else, the fact that Jesus had just called out to heaven and then a great noise came from heaven would have at least made them go, whoa, something's going on here and pay attention. But I think more importantly, the critical example of Jesus here would be understood by his followers in the future as they looked back on these events with the perspective of the resurrection and the benefit of an inspired account of the words of God. And so I think there's a little bit of a sense in which Jesus says, this is for your sakes, even if you don't get it yet. And it's often the case that only later do we understand the significance of something that we imperfectly observe in the present. How many movies hinge on 
the importance of that little seemingly insignificant thing the camera pans across during the first one or two moments of a movie. And by the way, if you want to spoil every movie you ever watch, just watch for that at the beginning of the movie. Whenever the camera pauses for just a second on something that's not important and then keeps moving at the beginning of the movie, there's your answer. It's a plot device that God loves using in history too. We must often wait patiently to understand the significance of what we are experiencing. In this case, Jesus gives three objective results of what he is about to endure on the cross. Look at verses 31 to 33. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And so first he says, judgment is upon this world. At the cross, both Jews and Gentiles thought they were passing judgment on Jesus. And Jesus is telling them exactly the opposite is the case. Jesus is the presentation of God to man. In his death, the entire world system is found to be guilty of rebelling against God to the point of seeking his death. And Jesus is also the dividing line of humanity. As Jesus taught repeatedly, such as back in John chapter 5, verse 22 and following, belief in him determines our eternal destiny. Therefore, all men are judged on the basis of what they do with Jesus. That this division is a true division and not just the rambling of a madman is accomplished and proven in the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This hour will be the judgment point of the world. Second, the ruler of this world will be cast out. At the cross, Satan, who was called the ruler of this world again in chapters 14 and 16, he thought he had dealt a blow against the invasion of the king of heaven, when in reality he had just shattered his own throne and exiled himself. Satan's reign over the fallen race of Adam that he had deceived in the garden ended when the second Adam triumphed where the first had failed. And in so doing, it also vindicated the faith of all those in the Old Testament who would look forward to the promised Messiah with faith. And it secured the right of the Lamb to sit on David's throne forever. I love the picture in Revelation 5 of the power of this moment when it is revealed in that vision that John himself would later be given of the throne room of heaven. And in that scene, if you'll recall, there's this document this seal, our seven-sealed scroll that contains the right to be the ruler of this world. And it is brought forth, and a call is sent to see if anyone is worthy to open it. And John weeps when nobody comes forth. But then he is comforted with these words. Revelation 5, beginning of verse 5, says this, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, not a lion, a lamb standing as if slain. And later in verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for because you were slain. 
and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is the hour as Jesus approaches it that he declares will be the basis for him casting out the usurper Satan and his entire system and taking up his throne forever. And third, the crucified Jesus will draw all men to himself. At the cross, Jesus was lifted up. It was an execution designed to emphasize the ultimate rejection of a man by society. It was a humiliating death designed to leave the victim with nothing but shame and agony. And yet, Jesus says that once again, the hour he faces will be a reversal. When he is lifted up in a gesture of rejection, he will instead draw all men to himself. And as we just saw in Revelation 5, the lamb who was slain will be preached throughout the world until there are believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Just as Moses lifted up a bronze serpent as an object for belief and deliverance in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up and become the object of faith for all who seek salvation. Jesus turned to truth to steady his soul when it was distressed. And now he is giving us more truth that outlines the objective accomplishments of his coming hour. And in in an age that prioritizes experience and individualism, we must cling to the objective truth of the gospel. Jesus, in fact, will close this conversation with an appeal for us to do just that. But again, a couple brief lessons. First, watch now, understand later. Watch now, understand later. When we're in the midst of our trial, the temptation can be to flinch and close our eyes and hunker up until it's over. And if we do that, we will miss everything that God is doing around us during the trial. And so with faith, we cry out to God, deliver me if you will, but do your will no matter what it is. And then we watch to see what God is doing around us with the expectant hope that even if we do not understand it now, we don't want to miss what it meant later. And secondly, the gospel is a truth claim. The gospel is a truth claim. It's not a psychotherapy. It's not a self-help technique. The gospel is a truth claim. It's saying that there was a historical event in which God became man and lived and died and rose again and that because of that, this world is under judgment and Satan's time is limited and people from every nation, tribe and tongue will come to be part of the family of God. To be a Christian means to say, not I feel that that's a nice message, but I believe that claim to be true. That is the foundation of our faith. And lastly this morning, truth to shine. Truth to shine in verses 34 to 36. Look with me at verse 34. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? This is actually a pretty impressive theological question. It means they have been paying attention, 
And here's what's confusing them. They understood, at least to some degree, that Jesus had just hinted at his death, and this posed a problem. Jesus had referred to himself as the Son of Man. They understood this to be a claim to be the Messiah. They had listened enough in Sunday school at synagogue to know that Isaiah, Ezekiel, the Psalms, the Old Testament all indicates that the Messiah would reign forever. And now Jesus is saying he's going to die. Doesn't this blow up the whole Jesus is the Messiah theory? And so if Jesus isn't the Messiah, who is? It's a good question. But notice how Jesus answers it. Look at verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that their question was a bad question, nor does he get into a lengthy discussion of it. In fact, had they had ears to hear, they probably would have realized he just answered their question and what he had just said. But what they need to know right now is not a theological discourse, but a very important reminder. We have already seen the role that truth plays in steadying a distressed soul and as the essence of the gospel. And what Jesus is reminding his listeners of here is that truth isn't something you can just find anywhere. This kind of truth is not something that's widely available. Jesus expects that there are things that they are confused by and don't understand yet, but he also knows that people who are confused tend to wander off. They tend to wander off. And so he is challenging them to recognize that he is the only source of answers for their questions. He is the light. And soon he will no longer be with them. But for now, they have a chance, even if just for a few days, to be close to the light. If they stop listening to his teaching, they will lose any chance of understanding truth. They will be overtaken by darkness. They will not know where they are going. But if they believe in the light, they will not only have understanding, but they will become sons of light. They will go from receiving light to being identified with the light. Truth illuminates. It doesn't always illuminate everything all at once, or perhaps more, more accurately, it sometimes takes our eyes a while to adjust to the light and be able to perceive what it is illuminating. Ultimately, Jesus is the light of the world. Belief in the objective truth of his life, death, and resurrection causes us to become children of the light. And as his children, we have the privilege of sharing that light with others. And wherever it shines, there is the opportunity for others to come to the light, to understand the light, to believe in the light. But that opportunity is always limited. Limited. Jesus was only here on earth for a limited time. We are only on earth for a limited time. God will ensure that there is always a witness to the gospel in this world, but there is no guarantee that a person who rejects the truth today will have the light offered to them tomorrow. In fact, these words were the last Jesus spoke at this time. This window into the light had just closed for the day. Look how the verse ends there. These things Jesus spoke, and then he went away and hid himself from them. We don't know where he went exactly. I imagine it was to one of the many places that Jesus liked to get away alone to be with his Father and to pray. 
His teaching for the day was complete. The audience was left to consider what they had heard, and now they had to choose what to do with the light they had received. And we must choose too. Even the verses we have studied this morning are now truths to which we are accountable. So bring your hard questions. Bring your doubts. Bring your concerns. But bring them to the light and stay long enough to understand and believe. We're a Bible church. That's synonymous with saying we're a truth church because Jesus taught us God's word is truth. This is how we come to know God, how we learn to be like Jesus Christ. And that means we must live with conviction about the truth. We must seek truth. As our first lesson in closing, seek truth. We must love truth. We must believe truth and we must live truth. This is not a cold, sterile legalism. It means that we have a relationship with God that's based in reality and not sentiment. There's a reason a person marries their true love. They're trying to say something about the reality of that relationship. And so we too are saying, we believe that what God has said is true and our entire life now is based upon that. That's the power of gospel truth. The reality of God's glory displayed in the work of Jesus is the truth that steadies our soul. It is the truth that defines salvation. And it is the truth that brings light into an otherwise impenetrably dark world. In just a moment, we're going to close with a couple verses from a last song. And we will be reminded... I think we are. Yes? Still good? Yeah. I'm a little long. I'll hear about that too. (laughs) We're about to be reminded in the sunshine blaze of that light, our life will brighter, fairer be. And amid suffering, we remember the promises of God are not in vain and mourn shall tearless be Christian do you believe this let's sing